0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Immigrants in Colorado regularly lose money, time, and even risk deportation because they go to non-lawyers for legal services. A cultural disconnect is sometimes at the heart of this. Colorado's attorney general wants to do more to protect immigrants from this. And she's looking to Boulder County, where the district attorney says his department has cut down on what's called notario fraud. And Stan Garnett, welcome to the program.
1: Ryan, nice to be here. Thanks very much for having me.
0: So a state law that took effect last year was supposed to make it easier for law enforcement to crack down on these non-lawyers providing legal services to immigrants. But the Attorney General, Cynthia Kaufman, said last week that her office has very few complaints to investigate. So does that mean this really isn't a problem then? What's going on here?
1: No, I don't think it means that at all, Ryan. I think it very much is a problem in many parts of the state. I think we've gotten a bit ahead of it in Boulder County with our immigrant protection initiative that we've had for several years. But the attorney general had a press conference last week, which I participated in with the U.S. attorney, to raise people's awareness of the law and to make sure people understand how they can report a violation if it occurs. Why don't you think people are coming forward? Well, it's really interesting. You know, we've been working hard in my jurisdiction uh, to fight crime against the uh, immigrant community now for almost six years. It's a community that lives kind of below radar. Often um, uh, their uh, their strategies for success involve trying to be as secretive and kind of um, non-visible as possible. What that means is a lot of times efforts to communicate through the uh, the mainstream media, etc., don't reach this group. So I think if we do a better job of reaching out and communicating, we'll do a better job of getting a handle on the problem.
0: There are many immigrant advocates who may attribute this to an increase in fear and mistrust uh, potentially to the Trump administration policies. And I'm going to point out that uh, both President Trump and here in Colorado, the Attorney General, uh, Cynthia Kaufman, are both Republicans I want to say that you'll soon be president of the DA's association in Colorado, and I understand that this is a priority for you to talk about with that group. And, and more from the attorney general here. Cynthia Kaufman says there are scammers in our state who are impersonating attorneys, selling immigration appointments, impersonating immigration officials, and even acting as if they are government agency representatives. In exchange for the large sums they demand for their services, these untrained individuals actually cause great and even irreparable harm to vulnerable populations. So what have you done in Boulder County, you say, for some six years now, that
1: the rest of the state could implement? Well, we've uh, had a program in place that mirrors very closely what we do to protect seniors in Boulder County and other vulnerable populations. And it's really twofold. First thing we do is we educate uh, the uh, folks who are potential victims about the American system of government, how it works, um, the difference between local police, federal authorities, et cetera. And then we also uh, warn them about um, particular types of crime that will be committed against them or may be committed against them, such as notario fraud, and what to do if it is committed, who to report to, how to get in touch with us, and how to make sure Uh, that the system does what it can to achieve justice.
0: But you said that the traditional sort of media channels to reach an audience don't work here. So how have you gotten the message out?
1: What we've tried to do is uh, develop strong relations with uh, groups that work closely with the immigrant community in Boulder County. In those, there's a number of advocacy groups who are terrific and have great relations. And uh, also we've uh, begun a program of working with the religious communities in Boulder County, a lot of the churches and synagogues and other religious communities have very strong relations uh, with the community that we're trying to protect. And if we uh, manage our presentations and our uh, programs in connection with them, it it helps to make sure we reach the population we're trying to reach. And indeed, others outside Boulder County are looking at what you've done there
0: Uh, The head of the DA's association in Colorado, that's Tom Raines, says your push to educate the immigrant population has made a big difference. But he says the approach could be harder in rural areas where one district attorney may have to cover six counties, for example.
2: In the metro area, it's a little easier to have, you know, large scale meetings or community meetings where you're going to get a lot of the folks that this impacts. When you get into the, uh, the more rural part of the state, most judicial districts are multiple counties. Uh, some of the immigrant communities more agrarian in nature. So to get,
0: you know, whether it's field workers or factory laborers or whatever we're talking about, to come to a meeting is a little tougher to do. But it can be achieved in the communities, whether it's something like Montrose, Durango, Pueblo, Alamosa. I, I think we just got to start the process
2: and, and hopefully word would get out.
1: What do you think? Totally agree with Tom Raines on that. Tom is a very experienced uh, former elected DA and our executive director. It's one of the reasons that I'm particularly pleased uh, that the attorney general has uh, agreed uh, to help us and take this program statewide because the resources of that office uh, will be very helpful to us in reaching more people. What Tom's referring to, uh, Ryan, and I know you're aware of this, many district attorney's offices in rural Colorado are very small They only have two or three lawyers, and coming up with uh, enough staff to organize and hold these meetings can be difficult. Mm. So it's a staffing issue as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, You've said to this word
0: notario, uh, this is called notario fraud, that there's confusion partly because of vocabulary. So um, in the U.S., being a notary typically doesn't require a ton of training or expertise, and so their powers are limited. But in Latin America in particular, notarios have much more legal authority. Uh, So there may be confusion there, and maybe that they're preying on that, or it's accidental. But this is not just about notarios who've taken advantage of immigrants in this way. Your office prosecuted a case in 2014 of a local attorney who charged families tens of thousands of dollars and then not gotten the visas and work permits that she promised. Uh, what did you learn from that case that has informed how you have, uh, as you
1: say, cut down on, on consumer fraud that targets immigrants? Well, we learned a lot with that case. Uh, that case was very interesting. It was a two-week trial, and we proved uh, a number of counts of theft and fraud against a uh, attorney who had taken really uh, serious advantage of uh, her immigrant clients what we we learned were things that uh, when you think about it are pretty intuitive. First of all, if you're undocumented and you live in the United States, probably one of the most important things in your life is figuring out how to become documented and If somebody who seems to know what they're talking about tells you that if you give them a bunch of money, uh, they will get you uh, legal status or a visa or even citizenship, most people in that situation will do almost anything uh, to accomplish that. So they are are potential uh, victims for all kinds of fraud and can be taken advantage of. And then because they often are afraid of the authorities and of the system, they're uncertain how to make reports about what happened to them. And it's, uh, as a result, uh, sometimes difficult to hold the the criminals accountable who take advantage of this group.
0: I mean, I can imagine there are some listening who say they should be
1: afraid. They're here illegally.
0: Why, Stan Garnett in Boulder, spend your resources, which
1: presumably are limited, on these kinds of cases? Well, it's been interesting, as I've talked about this program nationwide and even at uh, programs uh, outside the United States Every, what's really interesting is everyone involved in law enforcement, whether they're Democrat, Republican, conservative, or liberal, knows that it's never healthy in a community to have a population who the bad guys, the criminals think uh, can be fair game, people that you can take advantage of, you can prey on, you can commit crimes against, and nobody will do anything. Uh, so the reason is to maintain public safety. Um, for everyone in the community and also to reinforce the rule of law that under the laws of Colorado and the laws of uh, uh, most states, immigration status is completely irrelevant, has nothing to do with whether or not one is a victim. It's analogous to having a – it's a federal issue analogous to having, say, a federal tax problem. If you're a human being in, in uh, the state of Colorado and you're a victim of a crime, you have a right to justice and a right to uh, report that and have the system act on your behalf. That's all we're doing. It's very basic. It's very American, and it's worked very well over the last few years.
0: Just one final point. You said that uh, part of your efforts in Boulder was to educate uh, immigrants that there's a difference between federal authorities and local authorities, uh, you know, which presumably uh, touches their immigration status, their fears of deportation. But under this administration, you have a president who is calling on, on local law enforcement to help find and hold, and ultimately deport more unauthorized immigrants, which I gather blurs the line between local and federal.
1: Yes, certainly a lot of the rhetoric coming out of Washington right now um, blurs the line and is confusing. However, the reality is we have a federal system of government in the United States. Uh, I, as a state of Colorado official, have very clear duties under Colorado law. I do not have an obligation to enforce Federal law, and as a matter of fact, have no jurisdiction to do so. So when we take the time to explain how the American system of government works and why you can safely report something to your local police, um, it's uh, very helpful in building the sense of trust and confidence that that everybody in law enforcement wants to have with the people that we're trying to serve so that they know they can safely report crime.
0: Obviously, though, there are other local law enforcement who feel differently about Coordinating with the feds. Uh, Stan, thank you for being with us. You bet. Thank you very much, Ryan. Stan Garnett, Boulder County District Attorney and President elect of the Colorado District Attorney's Council. We talked about what his office might teach the rest of the state about preventing consumer fraud against immigrants. One of the most prestigious literary awards is the Man Booker International Prize. And this year it went to an Israeli author, David Grossman, for his book, A Horse Walks Into a Bar. But he wasn't the only recipient. So was a Denver woman, Jessica Cohen, who translated it from Hebrew into English. She joins us from Tel Aviv, where she is spending the summer. Jessica, welcome to the program
3: hi ryan thank you
0: this story takes place during a stand-up routine in a club in a small israeli town the comedian is a broken man and during the couple of hours he's on stage he turns from dark jokes to memories of his difficult childhood some in the audience are angered by this performance because they came to laugh others are drawn in as he exposes his deepest wounds I'd like to start by hearing a little bit of your translation of the performance.
4: You know how everyone's all up in arms about bullying these days? Well, I say some kids just deserve to get bullied. Because if they don't get the crap bullied out of them when they're young, it'll just get worse the older they get. You know what I mean? Not funny. Oh, I see. Sophisticated audience, you guys are, with European standards. Okay, no problem. We'll come at it another way, which I think might be more up your alley. Here's a little psychological analysis plus emotional insight. Me, when I was a kid, I had the most accurate scientific gauge for knowing who was popular and who wasn't. I call it the shoelace gauge. Let me explain. Let's say a group of kids is walking home from school. Walking, talking, yakking, yelling. You know, kids. One of them crouches down to tie his shoelace. Now, if the group stops right away but I mean every single one of them, even kids who were looking the other way and didn't see him crouch down, if they all stop where they are and wait for him, then he's in. He's good. He's popular. But if no one even notices him, and only sometime toward the end of senior year, like at graduation, someone goes, hey, anyone know what happened to that dude who stopped to tie his shoelace? Well, then you know that that dude, he's me. Huh. What do you
0: think made this story so compelling to a global audience, not just an Israeli one?
3: Um, Well, I think that like any really good uh, work of literature... There has to be something that's very local, something that you can visualize as a place and a a character, even if it's a place and a character that you're not familiar with. But at the same time, there's a layer that is universal. There is something in there that is addressing uh, just the basic human emotions that we all share and that we all struggle with and and relationships and love and hate and, and death and all those Big words that we all try to grapple with every day, and and I think some part of the reason that we read literature, some of us is, you know, to maybe get a different perspective on how different cultures might uh, deal with those issues.
0: And so, as a translator, what are the toughest decisions you have to make? What gives you the, the most pause?
3: Well, um, that's a good question. There, are, there are a lot of things that are difficult, and, and every work presents its own challenges i i think that the, the probably the the overreaching challenge is to get across the author's voice or you know that might be the narrator's voice or the character's voice voice is everything in a good piece of writing mm-hmm. and you know often when i first look at a piece i think well this voice is in hebrew and how could it possibly be in english but that that's the challenge is to create a character or or a voice that English readers could hear as someone real and perhaps even imagine or remember someone they know who might sound like that, but not go too far away from the person that, that is originally there. I kind of think of it sometimes as a doppelganger. So, you ah. know, we have this Israeli character and he's very, very Israeli, but somewhere in the world he has some kind of counterpart that is speaking English. And that's what I try to find.
0: I see. You imagine an English-speaking doppelganger. Um, I think anyone who speaks more than one language is familiar with uh, having a word in one language that just doesn't exist in the other. Is that true for English and Hebrew?
3: Oh, absolutely. And yeah, I think it's probably true for every language. Um, Yeah, there are definitely words in Hebrew that... Um, have many, many layers of meaning. Um, I think that's something that that is really a main characteristic of the Hebrew language. I like to think of it as a a language of depth, Um, not so much a language of of breadth like English is. We have many, many words in English. The English vocabulary is massive and Hebrew is quite small. But so many Hebrew words have these layers of allusions and associations that may be cultural, historic, sometimes biblical even. And those are things that are very difficult to get across in English. I'm dying um, for
0: an example that came up in this book.
3: Um well, I mean I, I you know, specific words um I, I'm trying to think of an example. I, there's there's something that is um a wordplay that the comedian uses. He does a lot of puns and word plays. And one of them is um, based on a song that was kind of a political anthem of an Israeli political party. And he does a wordplay on it. Oh my God,
0: that would be impossible to translate.
3: It is impossible. And in fact, you know, I rarely say this. Usually I feel like you can translate everything, but there are those few occasions when you just have to give up and say "There's, there's too much here. There's too much cultural, historical baggage to try and carry across into English. So that was an example of something that in consultation with the author, we, we decided to drop because, you know, I don't like to use footnotes in fiction and trying to bring in the explanation of what all of this means would just be impossible and would ruin the moment. So, so we did have to drop that.
0: Interesting. Dropped altogether. Uh, what about slang?
3: Yeah. So a lot of slang in this book because the this comedian is, um, um, like I think most stand-ups, you know, he, tries to be very current in his language. And I think this particular character, he's, there's a little bit of desperation about him. And one of the ways that is expressed is in his constant use of very uh, current young language, even though he himself is, is not really all that young anymore. Um, so, for example, he uses... A word uh, which in Hebrew is "achukim," which actually comes from Arabic, like many Hebrew slang words, and it means it literally means in Arabic "your brother, my brother," but it's used in Hebrew to mean buddies or pals, close friends. So I went with BFFs in English, <laughs> uh, a- which has a yeah, it's a little bit of a different cultural weight, but I liked the way um, you know when it when a sort of grown person in the States uses the term BFFs. There's a little whiff of desperation there, like, look at me, I'm young and popular and current, and I know what the young people are saying, which is exactly what this character is doing.
0: You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Jessica Cohen of Denver, who helped translate the book A Horse Walks Into a Bar by the Israeli author David Grossman. It won the Man Booker International Prize this year, and she shared in the prize for her translation from Hebrew to English. And as, as I said, Jessica, this book is uh, about a stand-up comic and, and his long routine, and that means that there are a lot of jokes. And I think of jokes as particularly difficult to, to translate. Is that true?
3: They are difficult to translate, although, you know, I don't necessarily think they're more difficult than anything else. And although there are a lot of jokes in this book, it's not a funny book, hmm. um, which some people might be disappointed to, to learn. Um, and so, yes, there are jokes, there there's a lot of wordplay, which is difficult. Um, but I think what's more important here is the tone and, and what he's doing with his jokes and, and the way that you know, if you read between the lines, really, he's, he's, he's basically having kind of a mental breakdown on stage. The jokes are, are the framework. They're the format because that's what he's used to getting up and doing every night. Um, but there's really a very personal and quite painful and tragic story that he's telling about his childhood and, and his life.
0: Earlier, you talked about the portion of the original book in Hebrew that you dropped because it, it just didn't translate. How closely do you work with an author in the translation?
3: Um, you know, it really depends on the author and on the particular book. A, a lot of times, by the time I translate a work, the author has moved on to something else, and, and many of them find it quite difficult to step back into something that that you know there is just not where they are anymore. Huh. But that said, I you know every author i've worked with has always been uh, very available for questions i do send lists of of terms i'm unsure about or options that i have that i want to consult with and and they always do get back to me um with david grossman in particular he is quite involved in the translation um you know i'll send him lists of questions we discuss certain things um he doesn't necessarily you know go through the entire translation and comment on it Uh, But he's definitely available and will give input when he wants to emphasize something or, you know, is unwilling for something to be dropped and then I'll just try again and again until I get it right.
0: It sounds like from that answer that there are sometimes words you come across in Hebrew you actually don't know.
3: Well, once in a while that does happen. I mean, you know, I work with dictionaries and all all translators do because sometimes a word will have more than one meaning. Often a word will have several meanings. And, you know, I like to make sure that I know exactly what the author had in mind, why he chose that particular word. So it's not necessarily that I don't know what the word means, because that's something I can usually find out. It's more about what the author had in mind when he put that word in there. And, ah, it's um,
0: about intention as opposed to the strict meaning.
3: Exactly. Intention and tone and, and emphasis. Um, and, and David Grossman is an example of you know, a particularly brilliant writer who can always tell me exactly why, you know, this word or even this comma is where it is. Um, And that I think I've kind of learned that that to me is the hallmark of a really good writer is that they always know exactly why they did what what they did and what they're trying to get across to the reader.
0: He's exacting every comma is a choice and you have to honor that. Uh, Jessica Cohen of Denver, the translator of A Horse Walks Into a Bar, which has won the Man Booker International Prize. How did you get into this work?
3: Well, I started off um, about 17, 18 years ago now doing um, technical and commercial kinds of translation, all kinds of different documents. And then I began translating Hebrew literature just really as a hobby. I would come across Hebrew works of fiction that I liked and weren't available in English. And I tried my hand at seeing how they sounded in English and decided that I wanted to try and do that professionally. And I I, uh, contacted a literary agent in Jerusalem who represents many Israeli authors, including David Grossman, and sent her some samples of my work. And so many of my books that I've translated have come through her. And, you know, it kind of one thing led to another. And in fact, uh, the second book that I ever translated was by David Grossman. So I was kind of in the right place at the right time in that respect.
0: How did you learn Hebrew? Or English: I grew- um, what was your
3: <laughs> Well, I was born in England, but my family moved to Israel when I was seven, so I continued to speak English at home and, and read English, but all my schooling and you know my social life was all in Hebrew for the rest of my childhood until I moved to the States after college.:
0: Hebrew is an ancient language, but one that has to become modern, right?
3: It is. Yeah, Hebrew is a very has a really interesting story. It was, uh, you know, it's the language of the Bible obviously, and it was dormant. It was unspoken for thousands of years. Um until um d- before the establishment of the State of Israel, there was a very conscious and deliberate decision to revive Hebrew as the spoken language. Um and, you know, There had to be a lot of invention and a lot of ingenuity to take this ancient language and make it usable by modern society. And to this day, there is the Academy of the Hebrew Language, which has committees that sit around – Coming up with words that don't exist in Hebrew for, you know, these days it's usually technological things, but many, many different concepts and words uh, they will actually invent a Hebrew term for. And, you know, sometimes people do adopt it and use it. Other times they're resistant, but, but that does happen.
0: Fascinating. And so it's evolving every day. I suppose all languages are to some extent, but maybe at a faster oh, yeah. clip. Well, Jessica, oats I think that means uh, see, see, <laughs> you, see you later, right?
3: It does. L'hitra'ot. Okay, I'll be back in Denver in August. So all right.
0: <laughs> that is uh, Hebrew translator Jessica Cohen of Denver. She'll soon be back here. Uh, she joined us from Israel and she recently shared the Man Booker International Prize with Israeli author David Grossman for the book, A Horse Walks Into a Bar. And we've posted an excerpt in English at cprnews.org. Quick and cheap. It's the type of construction Derek Velasquez says he sees a lot of in Metro Denver. Velasquez has a show up at the Museum of Contemporary Art Denver that takes on everything from so-called McMansions to President Trump's gold penthouse. And welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So the centerpiece of this show is giant. It's elaborate. It's gold. Yes. And what it what is it?
5: Uh, the the piece uh, it's called XXXXL. Uh, it's kind of extra large, and in some ways, it's um, it's a piece that oh that is in the oculus of the MCA Denver. There's kind of an open hole from the first floor down into the basement space. It's um, about 1,200 linear feet of uh, gold trim molding stacked on top of each other. And in a lot of ways, it's meant to mimic cornice or crown molding that you would see at a place like Versailles. Um, And normally it would be kind of above you, but instead I've kind of put it below you where the Floor for the first floor becomes the ceiling for the second floor. In a way,
0: it's a frame that frames this kind of black hole in the wall.
5: Yeah. So the black, the the basement floor is black, uh, which is kind of atypical of a lot of galleries uh, in museums or anywhere. And normally, the frame would kind of be uh, above you, and there would be kind of a fresco painting of angels and the heavens and a blue sky. But instead. I've kind of flipped that around and turned it into uh, this black hole that you kind of look at where there is almost empty space.
0: And what are you trying to say with this? And I'll say that the, the frame appears gilded, but it's actually of pretty chintzy material.
5: Yeah, so it's this foam trim molding. It's readily available. It's very stock in a lot of ways. Um, what I'm trying to kind of say with the piece itself is uh, there's a lot of faux opulence that goes along with the... Uh, Decoration, And so I'm taking this crown molding and this trim molding and um, I'm kind of creating this facade in in this liminal space between the first floor and the second floor. I'm trying to get people to think about that. Perhaps the floor that you're standing on might be the ceiling of somebody below you hmm. and living within that liminal space becomes a boundary between two levels uh, potentially and thinking about buildings in general, um, how they're built, how we interact in them. But there's quite a bit of, uh, it's it's kind of a socioeconomic and political um, commentary. dig. Yeah, commentary. And how, how yeah. does it draw on what you see in Metro Denver? Oh, Metro Denver. I have a lot of issues with just uh, the architectural st- lack of styling that's going on in Metro Denver. Uh, the development that's happening within Denver is... It's just boring. we have no design standards here, necessarily. There's a lot of influx of people moving in, and what they'll do i mean it's so apparent like I know how they're built because I see two by fours go up and then I see o s b sheeting and then I see Tyvek go up, and then you see this kind of like dull color in this block building. so this is just a idea of uh the development that's happening in Denver. And it really, I think, affects the psyche of the city—the people who are moving here and the people who are um, live here already. It's—it's it's, buildings are kind of important in that way. I'm not necessarily thinking about architecture. I'm thinking about how buildings, from um, driving down the street to walking into them, to almost like a bird's eye view of how the city exists. It 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 can be a real. Um, it can just be a psychological effect on how we perceive our city and the people who are in it
0: and yet you must as an artist understand that the city needs housing as well and affordable housing so isn't inexpensive and quick housing precisely what artists need to be able to stay
5: in a place like denver it really is but in some ways though all of the things that are being built are being pushed as luxury you know i mean what this relates back to the frame for sure um, like what the question is, what is luxury? Is, is is now at the kind of modern block box building, um, which I kind of call like crap modernism. It's a way of, okay. uh, yeah, it's a way of, it's, it's this modern idea of like from brutalist architecture to mid-century modern, but it's going up in sup- such a cheap way, but it's being sold as luxury. I mean, people are paying a lot of money to be in there. Artists cannot afford these cheap things. And the city is beginning to address this as it's becoming more of a... Uh, more of an issue for artists or not just artists, but anybody who needs affordable housing in Denver.
0: This larger exhibition is called Obstructed View. Mm -hmm. What does that title mean, Obstructed View, to you?
5: It initially comes from, the, the title itself comes from buying a, Tickets at an event where you could uh, there'd be a column in, in your view. Oh, they give
0: uh, you that warning when you yeah. buy them.
5: Like, this may be an uh, inst- yeah. obstructed view of right. you know Lady Gaga at the Pepsi mm-hmm. Center or something. Yeah, because there might be a column in the way, or or yeah, if you're in a theater like that, you can, you know, uh, get a less expensive ticket by doing that. Um, so having that obstructed view, uh, it, it's kind of like changing, especially at the MCA. It's this gorgeous architectural building by David Adjaye and um it used to be that from that rooftop you could see the entire it was it's one of the best rooftops in Denver um you there's should, a little cafe up yeah, there and you can cafe. go outside mm-hmm. and for a long time the view was pretty expansive of mm-hmm. the city absolutely so now there's buildings going up all around it uh that are glass and um apartment complexes and and condos and stuff like that so um that view is being obstructed from uh, from that rooftop. So it's about that, but it's also a little bit about obfuscation and facade in a way, too. Um, a lot of the things that I'm using are facade. That trim molding becomes a, a fake, empty facade of opulence when there's actually nothing behind it and it's actually a fairly light material that floats. Um, there's also a series of photographs where I'm taking images of property lines. Uh, between old builds and new builds in the highlands right
0: so you might see the old brick of maybe a denver square Mm -hmm. and then just a peak of the home next to it which is one of those modern things yeah talk about going uh,
5: up yeah new modern build and And
0: there's such a there's such a visual contrast when you pass them on the street Mm -hmm.
5: yeah so that that series of photographs is this split like i want to see what it is that separates um those two buildings so in some cases it might be um, a chain-link fence with galvanized steel pipe. It might be topiary, um, but it also might be a brand new fence, which is, uh, in some of the images, there's what's called a gentrification fence. Uh, it's a very standard kind of like horizontal, um, uh, like beetle-kill pine that's, that's kind of like sta- uh, stacked and layered in a lot of ways. And that becomes a fence about that people put up that goes right up to the property line. So that we're kind of squeezing these these buildings together. Um, and I took photographs of, of focused on the things that separates it and the buildings in the background are kind of, uh, a little bit out of focus, but you can definitely tell that there's a difference between the old build and the new build. Are you down on Denver right now? Down on Denver, down as in, the uh, down with De- down on Denver. I'm always a little bit optimistic. It's, it's, I've only been here like eight and a half years. So I'm, I moved here kind of in the, down of the economy and i've seen this this growth and it was really exciting um i have a lot of optimism but i'm also trying to do a lot of work to um make people not down on denver
0: denver artist Derek velasquez his show obstructed view is at mca denver through mid-august he has a similar show opening this week by the way at denver's robichon gallery Listeners share their feedback in loud and clear. Kim Shell of Thornton responded to our story about a new law. It requires schools to beef up security. Experts say schools should focus on developing what are called threat assessments to identify potentially dangerous students. Well, here is Kim Shell talking about her own family's experience.
3: My son has been through two threat assessments at two different schools now because he is diagnosed with autism, ADD, depression, and anxiety, and possibly bipolar. And it's been difficult to get him services through the schools and through other professionals in the medical field. I think that government needs to mandate more money towards services required by special needs. The other thing I would like to see is for society to be willing to help those that are special needs instead of just leaving them behind.
0: A few updates now. Over the years, we've covered the story of immigrant driver's licenses. Colorado created them in 2013, and people in the country illegally who live in Colorado can get them. But the program has hit many roadblocks, including disputes over funding at the state capitol. And there have been long wait times, up to years, to get an appointment at one of the three DMV offices that issue these licenses. Well, things are about to get even more backed up renewals for the licenses start next month. About 11,000 people will need to renew, and they'll have to have appointments to do so. It means thousands more people competing for those appointments. Essential Air Service is a federal program that subsidizes flights to out-of-the-way places. In Colorado, we reported that airports in Pueblo, Cortez, and Alamosa rely on the money. President Trump in his proposed budget called for the program's elimination. Well, Congress isn't keen on that, apparently. There's resistance in the Senate, and just last week, the House proposed fully funding essential air service in an appropriations bill. Finally, traffic searches by the Colorado State Patrol are down by at least half since the state legalized recreational marijuana. That's according to a new report we covered last week. Well, also last week, the Colorado Court of Appeals ruled that the smell of marijuana in a car doesn't constitute probable cause for a police search. The court ruled in a case out of Craig where a drug-sniffing dog alerted to the scent of marijuana. We bring stories full circle, if there are loose ends, in Loud and Clear, and you can be a part of it. Find all the ways to contact us at cprnews.org connect. Boulder's Yonder Mountain String Band has a new album. The progressive bluegrass band has released Love Ain't Love. It features the song Allison.
2: They fall, they fall, they fall, they fall, they fall fall on Allison. They fall, they fall, they fall, they fall, they fall on Allison.
0: We got a preview of the album late last year when I spoke with two founding members of Yonder Mountain String Band, Adam Agela and Dave Johnston. And uh, Adam, Dave, welcome to the program. Good morning. Thanks, Ryan. You released the music video to Allison, which we're hearing back in August. Rolling Stone called it, quote, one of the prettiest odes to being a creeper ever written. Dave,
2: what's the story behind this song that sounds so kind of upbeat? Well, um, I think what we have in, in, I mean, if you have a protagonist, like in the song, I based it off of this really old um, poem that I found uh, it's in my old Norton anthology a, a poem called Allison and it's about this guy who you know, he's going crazy for this girl Allison and then it just doesn't happen Well, I, I kind of update, I did update it actually I, I just kind of empathized with maybe my younger self chasing after girls I could not get <laughs> and I tapped into that and um, I sort of I don't know. Found a way into the song, but I want. But it gets a, a little darker than just someone who's
0: smitten. Would you say?
2: Right. Yeah, I, I would say that um, there's a less than casual observer thing going on with the guy. You know. And so
0: you founded the band in 1998. Have released more than a dozen live and studio albums, and your most recent, Black Sheep, came out last year. It was the first album after the departure of founding member and mandolin player Jeff Austin. Uh, I understand it was also the first time the band went with the traditional five-piece bluegrass lineup for the full record, so guitar, mandolin, banjo, fiddle, bass. Why don't we hear the title track, Black Sheep?
2: I got the keys to the kingdom, got a ship to sail, a ship to sail, a ship to sail, bird in the hand. Sheep Black sheep Black sheep Springtime on the mountainside On the mountainside On the mountainside For your sake I always tried For your life I always lied Black sheep sheep.
0: You've been at this as Yonder Mountain String Band for, it's almost 20 years, right? How do you keep things fresh? And how do you keep interested
2: Um, I, that's a, I love that question. I think it's, uh, I think it's pertinent for anyone kind of starting out or in the middle of things or even at the end of things. (laughs) It's perfect for everyone. It's perfect for for everyone. And I think it's something you need to, um, constantly be aware of, you know, in maybe a playful sort of way. But I mean, for me, it's like, um, I just feel like there's a lot of stuff that I'm still very interested in when it comes to performing or practicing or things I'm listening to or things I'm reading, you know, it all sort of kind of can be cross-referenced with itself. And you can kind of find like a sort of inspiration in the pieces in the in the um, different ways those things influence the way you're thinking about things. It, it strikes
0: me, Dave, that you draw a lot of connections between things.
2: I feel like, you know, I mean, connections are nice uh-huh. and, and the world is very fragmentary and, you know, you can see as many connections as you want, I guess. And some of them are really powerful and inspiring. And inspiring, powerful music is uh, something you know, I'm glad to be a part of and grateful I, for. I think
6: having new songs um, keeps it fresh. And also having uh, a fairly new lineup keeps it fresh. These guys, um, Allie and Jake, are so this is uh, Jacob Joliff Joliff, and, yeah, and, and Allie Kroll. Yep. So uh, Jacob Jolliffe is on mandolin, Allie's on violin. Correct. Two new members. And they are considerably younger than Dave and I as well, so it brings a energy that uh, has been reviving.
0: Yeah, that's so interesting. New blood in a band isn't something that every band can count on. But Correct. But that's happened for you, and that wasn't intimidating. That's something you welcomed.
6: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, Not in my mind. It was never intimidating. And playing music is supposed to be fun, after all, you know. It's uh, like people say, what's a, I've heard the saying, we get paid to travel, we play for free, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and traveling is often the the part that feels like work, as opposed to the playing,
2: I'm guessing. Absolutely. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I, I definitely think that the larger part of the psychological strain probably... He's, the traveling. Come, yeah, it comes from traveling. Being on the Nautilus, you know.
7: <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: Let's hear this
6: uh, new song. It's still, it still has to be mastered. I mean, you've really given us um, a kind of... Actually, both songs, even Allison, they've we did a rough mix and a rough master for the videos. Because yeah. for the other song, there's a video. And we've been playing Bad Taste, the other song. We've been playing it live. on the dog that's waiting next to you. I'm black and white and wanting something innocent that I can like. If you want to kick me, kick me, and my bone's already broken, close my eyes for me to see. And it
7: leaves a bad taste in my mouth. A bad taste in my
0: mouth. Really gorgeous harmonies, by the
2: way. Oh, thank you. Good job.
0: <laughs> What's the song about?
2: Um, that's a good question. I, I think there's a lot of discussion in this song about, like, uh, what is black and white and, you know, what is easy to understand and what is entertaining and, you know and, you know, who's doing the perceiving and stuff like that. I mean, I'm, I'm being sort of uh, philosophical about it, I guess. But. When it leaves a bad
7: taste in my mouth When it leaves a bad taste in my mouth When it leaves a bad taste in my mouth
0: So, the band's sound is rooted in bluegrass. Is it true, though, that several of you didn't even hear bluegrass until your 20s? Yeah.
6: I mean, I didn't. I, I mean, I grew up in Massachusetts. There is a bluegrass scene there, but I, I didn't know about it. I grew up with classic rock for the most part. So, it was uh, one of those things for me. I got into uh, bluegrass via Olden in the Way and the Grateful Dead. Mm. Which, you know, because someone was like, hey, you know, Jerry Garcia used to play banjo? Really? And check out the band. And kind of got into it that way. It was, you know, obviously before streaming music and even listening stations and CD shops and record stores. So it was kind of like a uh, the way that I was able to learn bluegrass was mostly from people who had existing albums and would say make a mixtape or something. I learned a lot of stuff from Dave when the band first started.
0: Yeah, Dave, when were you exposed to bluegrass first?
2: well i was in I was in college as well um I had a roommate. his name's John Sampson, and his dad was part of like kind of like the bluegrass scene in, in chicago and um he came down one year with a banjo to the dorms and I picked up John's banjo and it was, since this is an open tuning, it's easy to make music on it immediately and so I was drawn to the banjo and then someone said, "Hey, you should." Check out this guy named Earl Scruggs. Ah. When I once I heard Earl Scruggs, I was just sort of like, "Holy cow! What what ha- what happened there?" And it made a big uh, imprint on my brain. On your brain, <laughs> yeah, that has lasted for decades. Yes, yeah, still there.
0: If you could collaborate with any bluegrass musician, who would it be?
6: Like living or dead? Oh, that's <laughs> interesting. I hadn't considered the dead.
0: Um, <laughs> Uh, let's of, go with living. Well, with so living, you, I we feel can like make we've this done happen.
6: it. I've, we've already done it. I feel like. I mean, Del McCurry, oh. In my opinion, I mean, the, the, and his and his kids and the guys in his band, Del McCurry band. It's he's. I guess would be considered second generation of original bluegrass, right? Right. And he's still alive, and he's still crushing it. As far every time I see him, and he's just the he's the real deal. And it, you know, not only is he the real deal as far as his talent. But he's a real person and he's super nice and he's very friendly and he's cool and and he's and sa- a legend absolutely blue and he sat yeah. and he's when sa- he well, sat in with us before, and I've had the pleasure of singing harmonies with him, which has been you know I've been a little bit nervous doing stuff like that but um <laughs> that's for me I don't know if, you know, if we are talking living i mean like I have a, like a whole host
2: of Esoteric banjo players that I would like to play with. I haven't (laughs) played. Yeah, like Ben Eldridge from The Seldom Scene or Alan Mundy from Country Gazette. Those are two guys that I love their banjo picking and I haven't gotten to play with yet. So that's two right off the top of my head.
0: Well, how about one last song before we say goodbye? This is from the 2015 release Black Sheep, and the tune I think is called Annalie correct?
6: Oh, cool. Yeah, Yeah, sure. Here we go.
5: Yeah. All right.
7: Anna Lee woke up every morning at the crack of dawn To the screaming inside her head And it was always worse than it really was And she could ruin things for everyone Anna Lee checked out every morning soon as she got up Sometimes she changed change her clothes But she never looked as good As she thought she did And it never was The way she said it was at all
0: Adam Agerla and Dave Johnston are members of the Boulder Progressive Bluegrass Group Yonder Mountain String Band. Their new album is called Love Ain't Love. We got a preview last year. That's Colorado Matters for today. From CPR News, thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner. She was already broken
7: when you picked her up. Yeah, everyone knows you were kind. But she was never home. When she said she'd be, of course, home to her was just, was just her mother.